Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. This is the California Report magazine. I'm Leslie McClurg, in for Sasha Coca. Remember that moment, just about a month ago, when it felt like everything might be okay. The economy was reopening, people packed restaurants and bars. I was in the Castro district and lots of people were out celebrating high vaccine rates. We're so proud of San Francisco. Groups of friends toasted to good times ahead. Everybody is so in a better mood. Inside hospitals, the exhausted healthcare workers were feeling it too. Doctors were experiencing their first real lull in the pandemic. Yeah, we had no patient, no COVID patients for a while. I did have a break for about three weeks with no, really no COVID in the hospital. Where it was like COVID updates, none. And everyone's like, yay, let's talk about something else. And then the Delta variant hit us. The Delta variant is taking hold across America. COVID cases have shot up. The Delta variant is driving the summer surge. The daily average tripled. It's, quote, more aggressive and much more transmissible. 47 states reporting an increase in cases. It's really scary. Delta is spreading two to three times faster than the original strain of the virus. The pandemic is spreading fast in unvaccinated communities. It's even taking hold in places like San Francisco, where more than 75% of eligible residents have their shots. Most of the people who are landing in the hospital are not vaccinated. But sometimes even people with their shots are getting really sick, mostly older people. Liz McCusker recently took care of one. She's a nurse in the emergency room at St. Francis Memorial Hospital in downtown San Francisco. He was such a lovely gentleman and he'd gone down the path of, you know, having a vaccine and taking care of himself, um, but developed these symptoms and was really very sick. It's just sad to see that again. The man was in his 80s. He developed a violent cough and never got better. And he ended up dying. Sort of a reminder of we're not out of the woods yet. What's also scary is that Delta might not just spread faster. It also might be more potent than the original strain. Dr. Saman Kanangara is starting to see that unfold in his patients. He's an infectious disease specialist also at St. Francis. The admitted patients do tend to be sicker and have more severe infections. Are you worried at all about your own health? 
Um, I am. I'm masking almost all the time now, except when eating or drinking. So indoors, outdoors. So yeah. I kept my mask on when I left the hospital. The situation is even worse in the Sacramento Valley. A few weeks ago, Dr. Nicole Braxley said she was seeing about one, maybe two patients a week. And now there are several a day. Braxley is an ER doc at Mercy San Juan Hospital in Carmichael. Yesterday, a man told me that he was not vaccinated because COVID was a political hoax that somebody made up. I had another gentleman that I had to admit for COVID, and um, I said, are you vaccinated? And he said, no, but can you give it to me today? I've been meaning to get it, right? It's too late. Like, the decision's already been made, and the damage is done, and so now we just have to admit the patient and hope for the best. The U.S. has plenty of vaccines, but only about half of the country and about half of our state is choosing to get them. There are places in the world and, and people and country that literally can't, they, they would give their right arm to get a vaccine, right? Yeah, it's a bummer. Sorry. Braxley's tears surprised her. She apologized for getting emotional. That's not usually her style, but she says it's been a long year. The state's hotspot is, again, Los Angeles. Thousands of people are testing positive every day in the county. I checked in with the doctor that I've been tracking through the pandemic, Dr. Denora Chinchia. I'm, like, running around like a chicken without a head. Chinchia is a pulmonologist specializing in critical care in L.A. She says she's currently drowning under her patient load, all of whom have COVID. Ah, I just think when they come in, they get so sick. She lost two patients that night. Chinchia says the current situation is sparking flashbacks of last winter's peak. It gives me, like, tremendous anxiety to think that we're going the other direction again. It's hard to believe that that's where we might be headed. Health officials say this fall could look like last winter. So how do we get out of this? In Alameda County, the answer is going door to door. The goal is 90,000 home visits in census tracts with the lowest vaccine rates. The goal is to tip anyone who might still be on the fence toward getting their shots. Sometimes it takes a party to convince people to get their shots. At a vaccine rally on a community farm in Alameda, there are balloons lining fences and smoke is billowing above hamburger grills. An MC jumps on the stage to describe prizes to a growing crowd. This isn't your, you know, McDonald's coupon raffle. We're talking $100, we're talking $500 raffles here. Even Alameda's mayor, Marilyn Ezzy Ashcraft, stops by. And we are serving Tucker's ice cream that the city is underwriting because who doesn't love ice cream and it's a beautiful summer day. She mingles among residents. We want to meet people where we are, but I do feel that it's a race against time too. Everybody I talked to had a different reason as to why they waited until today to show up. A group of teens claps for Zaria Anderson after she gets her shot. The 15-year-old works here at the farm. It just feels really nice knowing that I'm contributing to helping the world get a little bit safer. And why not till now? Why not get the shot before now? Um, I've been really busy with work. Others were nervous about side effects, like Gloria Brandon. She poses for a photo in her wheelchair. At first I was scared, but now I said, I'm strong and I'm brave, so I'm happy. And I won't get that COVID-19. That's right. I don't want it. 
Others, like Roxine Aikens, worried the science just wasn't there yet. I don't know. I just think I wanted to watch to see more studies, um, to see how women was uh, reacting to the, um, the dosage. But Aikens showed up today because the people around her stepped up. The more friends and allies and family that start taking it, it was a great inspiration to, okay, let's go ahead and get this done, right? And people did get their shots, but not nearly as many as officials hoped. At the end of the day, all of the effort, the music, the ice cream, the raffle, it all inspired 13 people to get a vaccine. That's the uphill battle public health officials face. It's slow and it's arduous. And yet every single shot does add up. And it's the best way to stop the Delta variant from taking more lives. If I asked you to name some legendary stand-up comedians off the top of your head, maybe you'd say Eddie Murphy, Dave Chappelle, Robin Williams. Ever heard of Charlie Hill? My name is Charlie Hill. I'm uh, Oneida. I'm from Wisconsin. It's part of your coin nation. My people are from Wisconsin. We used to be from New York. We had a little real estate problem. (laughs) Hill was a groundbreaking Native American stand-up comedian who found some success in Hollywood. But he's not a household name. Many people might not even be aware that there is a Native American comedy community. Reporter Peter Gilstrap digs into a recent book about the little-known history of Native American entertainers. The book, We Had a Little Real Estate Problem, is named for Charlie Hill's signature joke. But the subtitle is no punchline. The unheralded story of Native Americans and comedy. Here's author Cliff Nesteroff. It's a very delicate situation being a non-Native author diving into the realm of uh, Indigenous studies of any kind, and it's controversial as well. What I really tried to do was to let people speak for themselves. One of those people is comedian and writer Joey Clift. There's definitely, you know, a, a stereotype of the, you know, stoic Indian who's best friends with an eagle and flute music plays whenever they're pontificating about whatever. And, uh, you know, that's just not reality. I mean, some of us are stoic. Some of us are also real funny. Clift is an enrolled member of the Cowlitz tribe and was raised on the Tulalip Reservation just north of Seattle. He says the misconceptions about Native Americans aren't confined to simply determining who's funny or not. I've had grown adults who went to college, live in Los Angeles, work in comedy, so they theoretically should be, like, fairly educated ask me questions like, if I was born in a teepee, if my reservation had electricity growing up. Yes, it had plenty of electricity, and he had a TV set. Clift spent hours soaking up TV shows like The Simpsons, Family Guy, and Conan O'Brien. He saw his future in those shows, but how to make it happen? That was the problem. Because I didn't necessarily see any Native American comedians on TV growing up, I didn't think I was allowed to work in comedy. So um, instead, uh, I went to school for what to me was the next best thing, which was to be like a small market TV weather guy. It's days like today that make me wish I could cut the sleeves off my news jacket. It was that nice. In 2010, at the urging of his college professors, Cliff decided to take a stab at a life beyond just predicting sunny skies. So when I moved to LA, One of the first things that I did 
was just Google Native American TV writers or Native American comedians and see if anything came up. It did. Clift ended up at a Writers Guild diversity event that changed his life. And there was one Native American writer on the panel. So he very quickly introduced me to uh, kind of Native Hollywood, the loose collection of Native people working in the entertainment industry. Clift began doing stand-up in L.A. In 2018, he created the annual Native American Comedy Showcase for the Hollywood sketch comedy group Upright Citizens Brigade. He's currently writing for the animated Netflix series Spirit Rangers, created by Native American showrunner Carissa Valencia. The show's entirely Native American writing staff is a Hollywood first. Because I've been featured in this book, there are a lot of like younger up-and-coming Native comedians who have reached out to me and said, hey, I read your chapter. It really resonated with me. We should, get, we should do a Zoom and talk, and can you give me any advice? So I think that it's a really good... Um, you know, a really good bat signal for Native comedy, letting Native comedians know that we exist. But Native Americans getting a legitimate foothold in show business on and off screen, that's a new situation. That's the late actor Iron Eyes Cody as the Lakota warrior Crazy Horse in the 1954 film Sitting Bull. You might also recognize Cody from the character he played known as the Crying Indian in a popular 1970s PSA on littering. He had a tear running down his face as he witnessed America being consumed by garbage. Some people have a deep abiding respect for the natural beauty that was once this country. In real life, Cody was an Italian-American named Aspera de Corti who made a career wearing an eagle feather headdress. He posed as a native in over a hundred films and maintained that identity off-screen, too. But this casting arrangement was not unique. Anthony Quinn, Charles Bronson, Burt Lancaster, Rock Hudson, Audrey Hepburn, Johnny Depp, Burt Reynolds, Boris Karloff, and Elvis Presley all portrayed Native Americans. For the better part of a century, Hollywood has gone out of its way not only to exclude Native Americans from serious acting roles, but to create and perpetuate negative stereotypes. Here's Cliff Nesteroff. Westerns were among the first movies ever made. And by the year 1911, a contingent of indigenous leaders were already registering formal complaints with the White House saying, can you do something to stop the spread of racist misinformation appearing in silent movies? Those requests went ignored. And most of the stereotypes that were established were a dehumanization tactic. So, oh, they're, they're unsmiling, they're unfeeling. If somebody doesn't have feelings, it doesn't matter what you do to them. You know, another thing that is confusing about being half-breed is like, like Thanksgiving, for instance, you know? As a, a part of me, like I'm over there cooking and then I'm eating, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm being an Indian and, and a pilgrim. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm catching diseases and I'm giving them. I'm Adrian Chelopa, I love you guys. Adrian Chelopa grew up on the Kiowa Comanche Apache Reservation in Oklahoma. As a kid, her father turned around to Monty Python, Cheech and Chong, and Mel Brooks. 
She watched Brooks' Western comedy Blazing Saddles almost daily. After college, she was working a straight job at a bank when she finally decided to try stand-up in her early 20s. It was a huge risk because I was actually about six months pregnant with my second child. But the way that I looked at it is it can't be any worse than what I've already been through because I grew up in so much poverty that worst case scenario, I would tuck my towel between my legs and go live with my mom in a trailer park. That didn't have to happen. But unlike many comics, Chalapa resisted moving to Hollywood. Instead, she lives in Albuquerque, maneuvering her comedy career around her four young sons. My opinion of the industry is that it, it is elitist because it's a pay-to-play thing. You gotta pay for training, you gotta pay for headshots, you gotta pay to live in LA, it's expensive. And then what ends up happening is you do exclude middle America and specifically natives on reservations because the idea is, no, you have to come to us. She gigged at tribal communities all over the country from nighttime outdoor shows lit by car headlights to reservation casino stages. Pre-COVID, she was averaging four jobs a month. I chased every stage, every opportunity. I had no ego and pride in the matter. Like, if they were like, okay, you got five minutes in front of people who hate you, I would have been like, great, I'll be there. So, I'm, I'm Native American. Uh, I'm sure you guys can tell. Uh, just, you can't tell. You really can't. <laughs> can't tell because you guys think we're all dead. <laughs> you know, culture's cool, language is cool, you know, tri tribal stuff is all cool, but humor is the foundation. That is what keeps us just thriving. Because without that humor, man, you know, things get really dark. As the pandemic drags on, Adrienne Chelapaw is taking care of her kids and focusing on acting. The stand-up gigs are dead on the vine. It's still a struggle for natives in Hollywood, but she says Nesteroff's book is a positive step. Really, my hope is that it will just open doors to more comedians or at least let industry folks know that, you know, we're not a relic or we're not, we're not an antique, or we have iPhones. <laughs> we're not stoic. My name is Charlie Hill. Hill, that's the family name. Used to be Mountain, but I shortened it. You know, showbiz, you get that little edge. Charlie Hill died in 2013 without ever reaching stardom. He was still doing his real estate joke. But his unique stature in the comedy world of four decades ago showed young native comics and writers that taking their skills to Hollywood was not impossible. And to this day, he's still the only Native American comic to have made it to The Tonight Show. For The California Report, I'm Peter Gilstrap in Hollywood.
one out of eight new moms in California experiences postpartum depression. Two years ago, the FDA approved the first and only medication designed to treat postpartum depression. It's called Brexanolone, and most women who get it start feeling better within days. I felt the most myself I've ever been in my life. It changed my life and my relationship with my son. It's pretty miraculous. But the drug is outrageously expensive, $34,000. And according to a new KQED investigation, California's largest insurer makes it extremely difficult to get. KQED's health correspondent, April Domboski, explains. Miriam McDonald was 44 when she told her doctor she wanted to have another baby. The doctor said she had a better chance of winning the lottery. So when she got pregnant, she and her husband were thrilled. But right after having her son, everything turned. Three days into giving birth to him, I was thinking, oh my God, what did I do? I just brought this baby into this world and I, I, I can barely take care of myself right now. I feel exhausted. I haven't slept in three days. I haven't really eaten in three days. As the weeks went by, her depression got worse. She felt sad, but also indifferent. I didn't want to hold my baby. I didn't want to change him. I didn't have a connection with my child at all. Miriam worried her mood might hurt her son. She worried she might not make it at all. Every day I was crying. Every day I felt like I just wanted to die. Every day I, I thought about ending my life. Miriam went to Kaiser Permanente near Sacramento for help, and she says the doctors there put her on a merry-go-round of medication trial and error. First, one drug. It was making me more anxious than anything. Then her doctor upped the dose of another drug. I was having these horrific nightmares. So he tried another drug. That night I started hallucinating. I actually heard a jazz band playing outside of my window, a full jazz band. Her doctor told her to stop taking it, but he said it could take seven weeks before the hallucination stopped. Then he retired. And when Miriam complained to her new doctor that she was still depressed four months after giving birth, she suggested some more medications. I was desperate. I was like, I'm trying to help myself, but things are just getting worse. So what am I left with? What do I do? Miriam did her own research, and she found out about a new drug called Brexanolone. It's the first and only drug designed specifically to treat postpartum depression. Instead of targeting the serotonin system in the brain, like most antidepressants, Brexanolone works by replenishing a hormone that becomes depleted after having a baby. It's infused into the bloodstream over 60 hours. You can go to a hospital with three days, they give you this drug, it's an infusion. This, this could really get me out of this postpartum depression. In clinical trials, 75% of women who got Brexanolone started to feel better immediately after the three-day infusion treatment. UNC Chapel Hill Dr. Raya Patterson says for most of the women they've been treating over the last two years, the result is night and day. People walk out of the hospital wanting to be with their child, wanting to return home. You can really see that transformation in the hospital room over those 60 hours. But when Miriam asked her doctor at Kaiser for Brexanolone, she said no. In an email, her doctor said the existing studies were limited and unimpressive. And she told Miriam that she didn't meet Kaiser's criteria for the drug. She said Miriam would have had to try and fail four medications and electroconvulsive therapy before she could try Brexanolone. And all this had to happen within six months of having her baby. For Miriam, it was too late. But she thought, how could anyone qualify? 
this is crazy. You know, by the time you even try one drug that's like four weeks out, another drug is four weeks out, another drug is four weeks out, there's just no way. Kaiser's guidance is an outlier. KQED analyzed the guidelines from a dozen health plans. Three of them require women to fail one medication before trying Brexanolone. One plan requires two fails. But Kaiser is the only system we found that recommends women first fail four drugs and electroconvulsive therapy. Clinicians who treat postpartum depression say this is ridiculous. That is abusive. That's absurd. That strikes me as insane. It may also be illegal. Under a new state law, health plans must conform to scientific evidence and expert consensus when denying mental health treatments. State Senator Scott Weiner is the author. If Kaiser's making it effectively impossible to get a particular important mental health treatment, that could definitely be a violation of our parity law. Kaiser says it always follows the law. It also says its integrated structure makes it different from traditional insurers. At Kaiser, a patient's doctor determines whether a medication is necessary, not the health plan. But when I asked Kaiser why its doctors use criteria that make it so hard for women to get Brexanolone, they said the criteria are just recommendations, not requirements. Doctors don't have to follow them. The head of psychiatry for Kaiser in Northern California is Dr. Maria Koshi. At the end of the day, this is, you know, an individual clinical decision by both the provider, the physician, and the patient. But why issue clinical guidance if you don't expect doctors to follow it? Senator Weiner says Kaiser providers get questioned or can even face consequences if they don't. Whether it's couched as a recommendation or a requirement is almost irrelevant. It, it has the same effect. When Miriam McDonald's doctor refused to prescribe her Brexanolone, she said she was following Kaiser's criteria, that Miriam had not tried four other drugs. When another Kaiser patient, Yesenia Munoz, requested the drug, she was also told she didn't qualify because she hadn't failed enough medications. Yesenia was devastated by the denial. Four months after giving birth to her daughter, she still felt suicidal. I could get out the door sometimes and take the stroller and go walk, and my mind kept on saying, if you just step in front of the car, it's all going to go away. Yesenia went to state regulators for help, and the state sided with her, ordering Kaiser to pay for Brexanolone. She started feeling better on the first day of treatment. The nurse came in and she said something funny and and I laughed. It was the first time I had laughed in so long. She started looking through photos and videos of her daughter on her phone. She says it was like she was experiencing those moments for the first time. It was like a switch flipped. It made me happy enough to want to live. It saved my life. Kaiser declined to comment on any patient cases for privacy reasons. But Dr. Koshi acknowledged that their Brexanolone recommendations were developed two years ago, based on the safety and efficacy data available at the time. She says Kaiser is reviewing them now. Sometimes the practice recommendations are revised and made, you know, far broader. In the meantime, women are waiting. It was six months before Yesenia Munoz got Brexanolone and was able to start bonding with her baby. Miriam McDonald suffered for a year and a half. She never got Brexanolone. She eventually got Kaiser to cover a different depression treatment that finally worked for her. 
But she says she lost so much time with her son. When he took his first steps, she felt like she was barely there. I felt like I've been robbed, really, of all those moments, of those little milestones, you know, that I'm never going to get back. That story was reported by KQED's health correspondent, April Domboski. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Malione. Our director is Susie Racho. Amanda Font is our producer. And we had help from Hector Arzate and Chris Hoff. Brendan Willard is our engineer. I'm Leslie McClurg, and Sasha Coca returns next week. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.